Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the O Group on the Wildwood Nation podcast. With myself, Wildwood to Explorer, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Bathfield Guide, Ben Main, here at Wildwood Nation. Today we're looking at Operation Varsity, the airborne drop over the Rhine on the 24th of March 1945, following Operation Plunder, the amphibious assault by elements of the 21st Army Group by Montgomery. And we are joined by Alex Collins, battlefield guide, to take us through that and particularly probably to focus on the 6th Airborne Division side of it. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, that's, that's the main focus of my, uh, my interest. Okay, well, let's dive straight into it. Um, I guess in terms of the numbers involved in Operation Varsity, what are we talking about? And how does it compare with earlier Allied airborne drops? Well, Varsity was a, a big operation, um, but 8,000 British and about 8,500 US uh, airborne troops come in. By pure numbers, it's slightly less than Normandy and a lot less than, than Market Garden. But um, the important thing of, of, of Varsity of their numbers is they all dropped in uh, on the same day, all in all in one lift. It wasn't staggered like uh, Arnhem, and they were virtually next to each other. The, the drop zones and landing zones were all kind of next to each other, as opposed to to Normandy, where the you know the airborne troops covered each flank of the of the invasion. So that's 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 how the numbers work out. But um, yeah, big by the imagination. We touched on it there, that uh, one lift approach. Um, is it fair to say a lot of lessons have been learnt by the Allies from this and applied for this drop by the planners and also, I guess, the air crews and airborne assault troops involved? Yeah, most definitely. Obviously, the, the, the focus there of, of, of that point is, is uh, Market Garden. Um, but they did take things from, from Normandy as well. If you look at the major difference, varsity to the others, is this was this was daylight compared to Normandy and even though Market Garden was was a daylight drop here on Varsity they dropped directly on top of their objectives rather than dropping some distance away six eight miles away as as I was at Arnhem before before moving in yeah and uh, I just touched on there the biggest thing was was the 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 one lift all the troops that were going to be involved in the operation uh, all went and all landed in in one lift uh, rather than a staggered approach which caused, you know, a, a lot of problems with drop zones being overrun over at Arnhem. The 6th Airborne Division, obviously, we're focusing on them. Um, like, I suppose, their American counterparts have been rushed to the Ardennes when the Germans broke through in December 44. Um, and they've been really at that heart of the January counteroffensive, pushing the Germans back and trying to close the gap, the bulge. How much time did these guys get? Uh, six, well, obviously, when I say that, the 6th Airborne Division, in terms of preparation for Operation Varsity? At the top level, planning for assault across the Rhine actually went back prior to the Ardennes. It was always going to be an option. It was always something they would know they would have to do at some point. They picked that up after the Ardennes. There was actually a couple of options on the, on the table. Varsity, as we know it, um, and there were two other operations planned further down the Rhine in the area of Borms. Those, those were scrapped in the end because the Americans got across at Remagen on, I think it was the 7th of March. So they, when they decided Varsity was going to be what was going to be the one, when you get down to the kind of soldier level, company commanders were briefed by the COs uh, on the 20th of March. 
And the next day, 21st of March, all the troops were briefed by by their uh, by their COs. So the 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 fighting men, the you know, the airborne soldiers themselves, literally had a couple of days. They they knew something was coming. They knew they was going to go somewhere, having come back to England from from Europe. But um, the, the actual details were given to the to the soldiers that, that were going to do the fighting, literally a couple of days before. So yeah, so once. Um, I mean, the Sixth Airborne guys that had finished in the Ardennes, they actually moved north to, to Holland for about three, four weeks. Basically, that, that was to cover the, the, the move back of 30 Corps and all the armoured vehicles moving back up to the border of Holland and Germany. So once they come back from Holland, back to the UK, uh, it, they staggered it between 22nd, 24th of February. You know, the Airborne troops, they, when they go back to England, they know that they are then... On notice to move for uh, you know an operation. If with, with with Normandy, it was you know it was obvious that Europe was going to be invaded. They didn't know where it was going to be France, but not exactly where. And I think by the fact that the, the, the ground troops had started their attack in the Reichswald Forest, actually crossed onto German soil north of the Ruhr, um, the guys I'm fairly certain had a pretty good idea they'd be parachuting somewhere around that region and obviously the talk was obviously we've got to get, get across the Rhine to get into um you know mainland Germany I think you know dreams of dropping into Berlin were were a long way away but they they knew that um they'd be going into Germany that was the only other place they could go from that point we we touched on it before on social media um I'm currently researching this at the 12th Parachute Battalion in Normandy and was listening to an interview with Bert Marsh about his, well, I covered a whole range of things, but obviously specifically about the Rhine job. And I was quite shocked to hear how early these guys, I know it sounds a really silly thing, but how early these guys had already been awake in preparation for the jump, you know, getting their gear, sitting on the aircraft, et cetera, et cetera, before they even hit the DZ and have to face a full day of fighting for their lives against the enemy. I mean, can you talk us through when and where this massive air armada departed from yeah um yeah you mentioned bert i managed to meet bert um a couple of years ago and he, he's, he's a credit to all world war ii veterans sadly he passed as you know um yeah the, the, the thing that happened here was all the um airfields that were selected for for the lift were all in the um east of england um colchester chelmsford that kind of uh, part of Essex Suffolk border around there. Obviously, that's the shortest route across the North Sea to go over to where where the varsity drop zones were. Yeah, some of the airfields at Boreham, Weathersfield, Chipping Onger, uh, Rivenhall, Woodbridge, Great Dunmo, Shepherd's Grove. If you look them up, they're all around that all around that area. But the the, the trouble was for some reason there wasn't as many transit camps available for an entire division. So some of the guys, their their transit camps were, uh, you know, in a good couple of hours' journey to the airfield from where they were, where their camps were. So some of the airborne veterans that I spoke to said that they they drew their parachutes at the camp, then had to keep their parachutes with them on you know before on the way to the air, on the way to the airfield rather than getting it you know at the airfield. So they had this parachute packs with them and wondering you know looking at this chute all night thinking i hope it's been packed properly rather than having short notice to worry about that when you pick up at the airfield so that's why they that's why they got up at two three in the morning they had to leave at 
you know, four o'clock or so, because the, the, the planned times for the takeoff was between 7, 7.30 in order to get to the drop zones about 10 o'clock. So that's why that was up very early, which uh, w- would have annoyed me too. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we kind of, we've touched on it and danced around it a little bit. What's the situation like in Europe now in March 1945, the build-up to Operation Plunder and Vasty, the crossing of the Rhine? How are things looking? Well, obviously, after the the German advance into the Ardennes, obviously they 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 lost a lot of men. They lost countless divisions there, um, and they'd been pushed back all the way back into Germany. So at the time, at March, you had the Twenty First Army Group forming, you know, close to the Rhine, north of uh, the Ruhr district. Most of the Americans were south of the Ruhr district, and yeah, that was the that was the big obstacle that was in their way getting over the Rhine, where they had to get over and then finish this thing off. So the Germans were, you know, in retreat, in disarray, um, and were doing their best to form up whatever defence they could because they, they they knew that the end was coming. That's you know, notwithstanding what was happening on the Eastern Front, I think by the time varsity and plunder happened, the Russians were not far. No, they weren't in Berlin yet, but they weren't far from it. So. Um, you know, the, the end was near, but it, it still needed to be to be finished off. What was Monty's plan? I suppose, especially as we're talking about Varstiv, the airborne uh, aspect of this. Where would you know, where would they be dropping exactly? Okay, so the area selected for the airborne drop was just outside a small village called Hammonkeln, and uh, Hammonkeln is just you know, a few miles north of a town called Basel, which is which is on the Rhine, and Monty wanted to, you know, use the airborne uh, division for this operation. And Miles Dempsey, commander of the Second Army, he actually gave his request for a certain area to be commanded and dominated by the airborne to assist their their river crossing. So between Vasil and Hammonkeln is um, a, a, a ridge that's, you know, covered in trees. It's called the Deersfort Vale, Deers, the Deersfort Forest. And if your land troops crossing an obstacle, in this case, the, the River Rhine, um, any high ground in the area, you want to be dominated by your own troops for obvious reasons. You know, artillery observation, um, you know, high ground is, is, is what any military leader wants. So, yeah, the, the drop zones are all around uh, the Deersfort Forest up to Hammonkeln. And so the 6th Airborne would take the left flank, the 17th Airborne would take the right flank, they would have patrols and link up in the in the centre. Yeah. So, if we just touch on each, you know, uh, a little bit more detail on on who was doing what. So, regards to Sixth Airborne Division, the Third Parachute Brigade w- would go in first onto their drop zone, drop zone A, and the three battalions uh, in in that brigade. The Eighth Battalion dropped first, and their job was to to uh, secure the drop zone and, and basically take on any any defenders. Uh, the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion and the 9th Battalion would drop after. The Canadians' job was to, in the most part, secure uh, a road um, alongside the DZ, which would be the intended route for the ground troops to meet up. Um, that was also the expected counterattack uh, direction um, in, in that area. And the 9th Battalion were given the job of seizing the, the high point in the Deersfort forest, the, the, the high ridge line, which overlooked the approach from the Rhine. Um, that was given to the 9th Battalion. 
to do that, which was the main divisional objective. Fifth uh, Parachute Brigade coming after their drop zone, drop zone B. That was um, halfway between Deersfort Forest and the village of Hamilton. Um, and the three uh, battalions in that brigade, the seventh battalion had the same job as the eighth, but on their own DZ, they were to drop uh, and basically take on any um, any defenders, allowing the twelfth and thirteenth battalion behind them to secure um, various crossroads um, and that general area, um, which led up to Hammondkill. Uh, the sixth Fair Landing Brigade, their job was to secure. Um, Bridges over the River Isle. Now, this is this is one of the main parts of Varsity. Um, in Hammondkeln, the River Isle goes through it. Um, it's not a very big river, but it's um, having been there a few times. It's at, it's at least you know three four meters wide in some parts. It's a tank stopper. It's a tank obstacle. So, a crossing over that is 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 imperative for any kind of advance. So, the Royal First Battalion Royal Officer Rifles had to seize a bridge on the south of the village. The Oxton Bucks, uh, 2nd Battalion Oxton Bucks Light Infantry had uh, another bridge on the top of the north end of the village and a small railway crossing that went over the, the, the River Isle. And the 12th Battalion, the Demetrius Regiment actually had to take the village of Hammercone itself. And the reason why these, you know, as I've just touched on, the bridges was so important to, to keep hold of for the, for the oncoming advance once the Grand Troops linked up. But it was vital to take them because it was a perfect fallback point for any German defenders. If you, if you, uh, if you can imagine the scene, if you look from Hammondkeln back towards the the River Rhine where the drop zones are, it's, it's you know perfect drop zone, flat level ground, um, but flat level ground with unrestricted views is also perfect tank killing country. So if if the Germans were allowed to control those those crossings. Um, over the river I saw you'd have you'd have a bottleneck of vehicles out in the open and they'd be at the mercy of you know artillery and uh, anti-tank weapons which would put a serious dent in the Allied advance so without going into too much detail and trying to give you a bit of a flavour for what what the 6th Airborne Division's job was that that pretty much was it. That's absolutely absorbing thank you. What was the intelligence like for this was it was it fairly accurate? Yes there were Lots and lots and lots of um, aerial photographs building up a picture of, of the, the defences. But one thing that shouldn't be underestimated is the, the, how good the Germans were at camouflage and concealment. The amount of um, guns that were still active, even when the airborne drop was, was, was happening. This, this was after the, the medium and heavy artillery regiments west of the Rhine were pumping rounds into what they believed to be the positions of the anti-aircraft guns and all the airborne boys were told, don't worry lads, the, the, the artillery is going to be, you know, sorting out the anti-aircraft guns on your zone, which, which, which wasn't to be the case. Also, the intelligence gathered after the Ardennes in around Holland, um, actually by the Sixth Airborne Division themselves, they they captured quite a few Germans on river crossings, prisoner snatch operations, and that was in order to build up intelligence summary of you know, who is across the Rhine because they knew that they you know they would be in that area by the time they went to uh, cross the Rhine. Uh, I say the 
in a nutshell, the intelligence summary was um, was spot on by way of by way of numbers and 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 what to expect. So they built up a really clear picture of what they were facing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I say they they made promises they couldn't keep with regards to finding <laughs> artillery. Um, anti-aircraft artillery the locations were in and around the drop zones. I said before, the Germans are very good at uh, camouflage and concealment, and you know, there's only so much you can you can see in a photo. What one thing that I'm still trying to get to the bottom of, I don't know if I ever will. I, I firmly believe that at some point, SOE SOE agents were in the area building up a picture on the ground. There is an account online. Uh, one of the paratroopers who, who, who said, oh, uh, our, our intelligence briefing said that um, SOE agents had reported German paratroopers were defending the area. So he mentions that by, you know, by name. Uh, but also a lot of people that have looked into Varsity have heard of the Koppenhof farm. The Koppenhof farm was the farm selected for the divisional HQ for Sixth Airborne. And its location is fairly central to all the, the drop zone and landing zones. But having been there and now actually being friends with the family that, that, that own it, at the time there was a fairly hefty air raid shelter in their front garden, which you couldn't see on aerial photographs. I've had a look and you can't, you can't see it. That's too much of a coincidence for that farm to be picked as Divisional HQ, because um, General Bowles used it as his command centre when he was there. That's too much of a of a of a coincidence for me so I, I suspect somebody on the ground reported that and that's why that that farm was 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 selected as divisional hq but um if if any of those files get released at uh, the national archives then we'll be able to get to the bottom of that but that's that's another story <laughs> well you touched in there obviously uh the artillery that softening up process for their intended area of operations for the six airborne division on the 24th of march um during the interview I did with Danny Mason, the 8th Parachute Battalion veteran we've discussed in the past, he touches on the site CC's Versal. Hopefully I'm saying that all right. Uh, um, Basel, yeah. yeah, would really stick with him forever. Then, I mean, I've looked at some of the photos online at the Imperial War Museum and some of the American archives. I mean, there's one on there that I almost thought this could be a First World War battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. It looks absolutely pummeled. I mean, what's... Yeah. How much of a softening oak process has this been through? Because surely that's not just purely artillery that's involved in this. No, no, no. They, they sent the RAF heavy bombers over. Um, that was on the night before. Um, so on the 23rd, um, the RAF bombed Vasil. Um, and they're very accurate in their, in, in their bombing. As that, as that photograph you, you're talking about shows, I've seen that photograph and I know exactly what you mean. Pretty good bombing by the RAF, you must say, because... Um, at that point, dead opposite the river there, the 1st Commando Brigade were on the other side of the riverbank. They were probably less than a mile from the, the centre of the uh, bombs that were dropping, um, which must have been an incredible sight and, and, and sound. Yeah, I, I looked into Vasil during the war on, on, on some resources and the population in 1939 of Vasil was 25,000 and in 1945 it was 2,000, which... Uh, which says it all, I think. Really, it was, it was, you know, it was a, a necessary thing to do for the, as you say, the, the, the softening up. It's the, it's the biggest town. It's right on the river. 
you know, uh, town could be used as a strong point by German forces and they did not want to take any chances at all in, in this operation. So, unfortunately, it was, uh, it, was, it was bombed to rubble. Well, it's a remarkable statistic. I didn't, I'd not heard those numbers before. Uh, mm. Really spoke volumes for, for what it went through. How was the journey across to Germany for the airborne forces? And did they encounter much enemy aerial resistance in terms of fighters? Or you've obviously touched on flak already. Uh, no, the, uh, the, the, the journey across was uh, very pleasant, very serene. It was a, it was a, it was a bright, sunny Saturday morning. No, no interference with, with the, uh, the, the planes coming across at all. There were a, 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 couple of, a couple of gliders lost, the tow ropes malfunctioned, a couple of aircraft had to turn back. Across the channel there were rescue boats, tugs out there, and patrol boats which, which picked up people that had to ditch in the sea, which did occur. Um, yeah, by the time, I mean, they... By the time the red light was going on, they were crossing the Rhine River itself. Um, and it's only when they got over the river, uh, over the drop zones themselves, that the, um, the anti-aircraft artillery really, uh, really, really kicked off. I mean, the, the fighter escort that these, the aircraft had was, was immense. Nobody was, nobody was getting near, uh, you know, certainly from that direction, coming across the channel over, over Belgium and, and, and up to the border there. But... Again, this comes back to the to the to the planning and the scale of this, this operation. There were diversionary bombing raids that happened at, at Berlin uh, and other other places in the east to keep any any available German fighters in the east rather than coming over to uh, to the west. And in fact, one of the uh, one of the US bomber groups flew from Foggia in Italy all the way up to Berlin as a as a diversionary run. They dropped bombs, but it was a, it was in order to keep fighters uh, away from from the varsity lift which is a you know another incredible part of the part of the grand scheme of this operation what was the sort of resistance these guys faced when their boots finally hit terra firma in some parts deadly some guys didn't even touch the ground some of them if you was caught if you landed in a tree obviously the drop zones um, especially drop zone a where three paraguay dropped there's a big, big, uh, you know, tree line up one side of it, which is, you know, the, the start of the, of the Deersfort Forest there. Uh, Jeff Nicklin, the CO of the 1st Canadian uh, Battalion, he didn't touch the soil. He was killed hanging in a tree, as did many other guys. In some instances, over on drop zone B, one of the guys from the 7th Parachute Battalion landed literally in a German machine gun pit and opened his eyes after he landed and the... The German helped him out of his harness and um, helped him un- un- unpack his brain gun from his kit bag and then duly, duly surrendered. So depended, where, you know, there was a lot of potluck involved. In the, for the most part, whilst they were active, if you like, the, the, the German defenders were, 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 were deadly. The 88mm the, the guns, you know, they were manned by Luftwaffe personnel, um, even though obviously they're, they're on the ground. And they were very good at what they did. They've had a lot of practice of shooting at aircraft in the sky, having been bombed for the last few years. Um, but obviously, as most people know, the, the 88mm gun can also be drawn down as a, in, a, in a anti-tank role. 
So especially the gliders coming in about 45 minutes, an hour after the, the parachutes, uh, parachutists, um, they, they suffered a lot of, a lot of casualties. Most of them machine gun this, um, you know, there was, there was so many people parachuting in, you know, uh, uh, you know, at some point they, they would have stopped, stopped fighting just for sheer, sheer numbers. So Ron Perry said, uh, Ron Perry was in the machine gun platoon of, of the seventh battalion. He, he, he said, someone's memories of war can be wildly different from someone that was 50 yards away. You know, if you're in a separate trench to someone else, something could have happened there, but not to you. So again, it's it's just the uh, the potluck of of you know, especially with the parachute landing. You know, where you land, how much cover you've got, how quick you can get off that 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 drop zone and uh, and fight. What were the German forces they were facing? Who who were they coming up against in terms of the units? Uh, it was the Seventh uh, Parachute Division and the Eighty Fourth Infantry Division. Now uh, the the I mean, they were seriously depleted in the numbers. It must that that must be said. But the, the interesting thing that the, the part of the 84th Infantry Division, part of its role was um, an anti-air landing unit, which I, I think is a remarkable look into the into the change of fortunes of of uh, of the German army. You know, you go back to the start of the war, the you know the the, the all-conquering Blitzkrieg soldiers taking France and Holland in in in, in weeks. You know, all that attack, that was, that's how Blitzkrieg works. But now there's so much on the back foot, they've actually got an anti-air landing um, unit. Their sole purpose is to try and defend defend Germany from parachutes and, and, and gliders, which just, just shows how their, their, their focus turned from, what they were the, from how they started out. One of those I'm really keen to talk about is Bob Sullivan. Uh, we both had the good fortune of meeting him, which we both went down to see him uh, yeah. in person a few years back now. Really lovely guy. He served with the 6th Airborne Division the whole way through from D-Day into Germany. Uh, yeah. Let's be honest, though, he has some incredibly good fortune with near misses before Varsity. Yeah. You've been back to the battlefields with him. Can you sort of talk us through his experience on the Rhine Drop? Yeah, so Bob being in uh, 3rd Parachute Squadron Royal Engineers, who were the engineer, airborne engineer asset for 3rd Parachute Brigade. Um, on Varsity, not, not all of the squadron was required to, to jump. Um, only some were, and Bob was, was one of them. Half that reason was where 3rd Parachute Brigade dropped, drop zone A, there wasn't, at that time, there wasn't any specific engineer tasks for them to do, they were basically going to be on call for you know the brigade to give them uh, jobs to do once once they landed and formed up. Yeah, Bob Bob landed on the drop zone fine, made his way to the the, the rendezvous point for him, which was the same as the brigade headquarters. And at some point, talking to him, we probably guess it was within an hour of landing. A German mortar team at a farmhouse. A, about 600 yards away, the other end of the drop zone managed managed to get him. So a uh, piece of shrapnel, mortar fragment, caught him uh, in the knee, which which was enough to make him immobile. And he got he got stretched off into the uh, casual clearing point, and then down to where the uh, main dressing station for three power brigade was, which was in a building opposite uh, the HQ. And th- this is this is an interesting point. 
And I'll say this to anyone that's listening, if they ever speak to a World War II veteran or if you've researched the subject, uh, be, be open-minded with all of, your, all of your sources because the parachute field ambulance for 3 Brigade was 224. 224 field ambulance, parachute field ambulance. Bob insists, and he'll still tell me now, that it was men from 225 parachute field ambulance that tended to him. So I said to him, okay, well, the 225 were with five brigade. And he's like, yep, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I was in that division, I don't know. And I'm thinking, well, he must have got that wrong. But did he get that wrong? Was it, was it just a section of parachute field ambulance that had landed in the wrong place and they just happened to tend to him? So a few years back, uh, similarly like Bob, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Nick Archdale, uh, 7th Parachute Battalion. Obviously, sadly, passed away last year. But I can recall a remarkable story he told me about his own experience alongside his CO on the Rhine drop. A real testament to the man. I'm sure you know what happened with this one for the Lieutenant Colonel Pinecoffin on the DZ, don't you, Alex? So, yeah, 7th Battalion, they were actually the last unit to drop, which... Again, I've, I've never found the answer to this, but I said before, if you think the 7th Battalion's job on their drop zone was the same as the 8th Battalion's job on their drop zone, and that was to basically take on any uh, attacking forces. Um, the 8th Battalion were the first to drop. The 7th Battalion were the last to drop, even though they had the, they had the same job on their, on their respective DZs. So once the three rifle companies, A, B, and C, of, of the 7th Battalion had got to their positions. Now, they're right at the top of the drop zone. There's a couple of square-shaped woods, which um, between A and B Company, there was only a couple of hundred yards. C Company were to the rear of them, about 500 yards away, and HQ um, in the middle. So the technical pine coffin, um, having been on the ground maybe half an hour, he, along with his radio operator, decided to visit each company location uh, to see for himself what the numbers were like, if the company commanders were happy with their situation, if they need needed anything, if they were particularly short of men, you know, just doing what a leader does on the battlefield, making sure that everything is as good as it can be and so they can get their job done, what they're supposed to do. And at some point, some officers had gathered around, uh, the CO, Nick being one of them, and an airburst shell from 88mm gun went off very close to them, actually killed one of the party, blew the radio out from the operator who was next to him, and Colonel Pinecoffin got a massive laceration across his cheek, and in his own words, the tip of his tip of his nose come off. And as Nick told me and told you at that at that time, that the CO just appeared to spit out some blood and tooth from his mouth and just carried on with with what he was saying. Just getting the orders out there for the, for the troops to carry on, having taken that massive wound to the face. Yeah, like I said, a, re- a real testament to the man's character, um, a true leader there, really. Yeah. Obviously, we focus quite a bit on the 6th Airborne Division and their experiences. Uh, what was the American 17th Airborne's role and their experience of the operation as they were on, the, like you mentioned earlier, the right flank of the 6th Airborne Division? Yeah, so th- their job was pretty much, you know, the same as the Sixth Airborne, just in the the, the other side of the Deersfort Forest, closer to closer to Vasel. So their their components of the Seventeenth Airborne, Five Hundred Seventh, and the Five Hundred Thirteenth Parachute Infantry Regiment, the Hundred Ninety Fourth Glider Infantry Regiment, 
just in case don't know uh in the us or bat or a battle um parachute infantry regiment is basically the same as one of our parachute brigades so if you you know just just to make it easier to follow so 507th their drop zone was at the end of the Deersfort forest they had to um basically secure the little hamlet of Deersfort and their part of the forest on the corner 513th um they were supposed to patrol through the center part of the of the forest having landed um and the glider infantry they had a couple of bridges over the river Isa was it you know as it um it goes from Basel moving up to Hemelkel so they was further south from the sixth airborne um capturing those bridges and as it happened the the 507th missed their drop zone slightly but not by far 513th had a fair bit of trouble now they they were allocated some of the new aircraft the c46 uh which is slightly bigger slightly faster than the c47 but it also had two exit doors one left one right so you could get 36 guys in there basically a full american platoon um and the idea was obviously you could concentrate your troops in a closer uh, area if you could all more could jump out at the, at the same time good idea in theory um I'm very very unfortunate very unlucky on the day as the 513th approached their their drop zone they flew straight over the top of uh three 88 mm guns that that saw them coming and and they was in the area where nobody had got to so they were they were free to fight these guys the british gliders hadn't landed too close to where they were the parachute drop zones were a mile mile and a half from these guns so they had free reign on the 513th flying over so they took uh, a lot of hits in the air that that made them jump early which means that they missed their drop zone but it was a, it was a happy accident for the sixth airborne as most of the 513th landed on LZP landing zone P which was basically right in front of the farm I mentioned before the Coppenhof farm it worked out quite well because Coppenhof farm was supposed to be taken by the defense platoon which was made up of a, a glider full of men from the Devonshire regiment they missed where they were supposed to land and so by the time the glider arrived with the divisional commander in and the signals and everyone else that was going to use the farm as a HQ the defense platoon wasn't wasn't there but a couple of hundred US soldiers already were they they actually took the farm cleared it were treating casualties there so that that bit of misfortune for the 513th ended up being a a good thing for the um certainly for the boys in 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 HQ one more thing about the the aircraft the C46 it was an upgrade on the C47 but they didn't upgrade the the, the fuel tanks so if a fuel tank was was burst it could basically fill the void in the in, in the wings and make its way up to the fuselage which which uh, did cause uh, a lot of deaths in um in in that way some of the guys didn't have a chance to get get out of the aircraft so they 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 suffered they suffered quite badly but the the glider troops 194th they they landed very very close they probably had the most accurate landings of 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 any one of the entire operation they landed very close to their bridges over the river isol yeah they they did they did very well Am I right in thinking that originally there were meant to be three divisions for this operation? Why was there not in the end? Yeah, there. Uh, I mentioned before there was plans afoot for some other airborne ops, 
which included the 101st, 82nd Airborne for the for Americans. Um, and yeah, you are correct. The original planning for Varsity uh, was 6th Airborne for us, uh, 17th Airborne and 13th Airborne. It's simply come down to the number of aircraft that they could have involved the 13th Airborne, but that would mean they'd have to go back to a second lift and the necessity to get everybody there in one go was more important than, than having those extra seven, eight thousand, thousand men. So, yeah, I, I get the guys in thirteenth. I believe they were they were flown over to France in preparation. Um, they were making practice drops in C forty sixes, and then in the end, they were told they 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 weren't going to go. So, it basically come down to number of aircraft. You mentioned that the hundred first and eighty second. Obviously, uh, everyone will be probably much more aware of those divisions than the, the 17th and 13th by all accounts. Um, yeah. Why were those two not used and the 17th and 13th preferred for the Americans? Go, go, it goes back to the planning. Um, basically, the airborne planners put forward these potential airborne drops. Um, the one further south down the Brine I mentioned before, um, that involved the 101st and the 82nd. So they, they said, right, if this goes ahead, you guys are going to do it. So we eradicate the, the 17th and the 13th in case we go with Monty's plan um, up in the north. Yeah, and I think because the Americans got across at Ray Margan, that then made the airborne drop null and void for that plan. So then they just stayed with the, with, with, with the plan, which, which involved, which involved the, the, the 17th. They were, what, what the Americans were expecting was once a successful cross of the Rhine and once we penetrated into Germany, they had half an eye on the regime collapsing and, and Berlin being up for grab. So the 101st and 82nd were on standby to drop into Berlin should it be required, which they probably thought they were going to get to do, which, uh, but obviously they, obviously they didn't. So... It, that that's that's they stuck to the plans of the original people that they had in place for each operation and, and as varsity was selected the 101st and 82nd didn't go and how long were the the two allied uh, airborne divisions expected to hold this advanced foothold you know the sixth uh, 6th and 17th before they were finally relieved by the advanced elements of monty's 21st army group who crossed you know amphibiously on the rhine mm. That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't think you'll ever see anywhere that says, oh, they were, they were expected to last two days, three days, seven days. Um, I think they're reluctant to put a, an exact date on it in case that went past that and then it would be seen as you know, maybe a failure or, or whatever. But if you look at individually, the, the, the guys dropped with basically 24-hour ration pack. But you can, you, you can go, you know, Good few days without food you, you, you can't last long in a war without ammunition so some of the guys i spoke to certainly um a veteran called peter lovett who was um in the ninth battalion he he said to me as as they were getting ready for this uh for this drop only thing they cared about or certainly him and the, the guys he was with was how much ammunition can i strap to myself because you know they'd had lectures on what happened at Arnhem. They, they'd spoken with guys from the first first airborne division that had come back, and for the fighting man on the ground, the point they took was, you know, they run out of ammunition. Obviously, they run out of ammunition because the supply drops went wrong. So Peter, uh, he, he said, all of his guys 
all they cared about was how much ammo can I get around me before I get into this plane. And he said when when their when his aircraft was going along the runway to take off, he said it was the longest time it took an aircraft to take off because everyone it was just so laid. Everyone was just so laden down with with ammo. But I guess I mean. Without a supply drop, uh, you, uh, I dare say. I mean, if you if you if you look at Arnhem, what do they go seven, eight days? Forgive, forgive me if I'm wrong, but that's what comes to my mind. So you're probably comfortably looking at looking at a week. Um, obviously, you know, one one thing squaddies are good for is 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 grounding. You have to take my word for that. Um, <laughs> once once on the ground, once their ration packs are gone, you know. There's farms around. There's eggs. There's chickens. There's this. There's that. That the guys would be able to just scrounge. But all they were more concerned about was having enough ammo to fight. And you touched on a really interesting point there, um, which is probably quite easily overlooked. I was speaking to a friend of mine um, who has a particular interest in troop carrier command. Literally the other night, and one of the points he made about the Normandy operation was certainly from the pilots of troop carrier commands that were dropping obviously the 101st and 82nd onto their uh, DZs was how overladen the paratroopers were and how how much of an impact that actually had on the aircraft in terms of um, when they hit that cloud bank over Normandy, whether they went, you know, in terms of then coming to the DZ, because the aircraft's overladen, that stall speeds affected as well. And that's, they've not had that experience before because it's never been like that on their training drops because they've never loaded themselves up to that level yeah. where they are going to have to rely on everything they've got on them. And that is it. So they've no, yeah. no like so the air crews haven't had that experience, nor have the paratroopers. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that's a really good point. I think you've made there, Alex. Yeah. And I suppose it leads into sort of what I wanted to touch on next was how are they obviously it could just be 24 hours before these guys are relieved. We'll touch on that in a minute, but how are they planning on resupplying these guys? Is it different? Because obviously the dropping zones are slightly closer to, I guess, their reinforcements from yep. the viewers' crossings compared to when we're talking about like Operation Market Garden principle. Yep. What is the plan behind resupplying these guys and linking up with them? Uh, resupply was um, a very intricate but ultimately successful part of this, this operation. There were 240 Liberator bombers, B-24 Liberators. It was their job to bring the supplies in. Um, they, they were airborne and on their way before they knew exactly where they were going to be dropping their supplies. The job for nominating that, that, that spot for the supplies was certainly on the 6th Airborne side down to the 22nd Independent Parachute Company. Now, you know them better was the Pathfinders. Their normal job, as I did in Normandy, was to parachute first, locate the correct drop zone, mark it with their beacons, and that will guide in the, the, the main body of aircraft. But they were employed slightly differently um, for varsity. Only, only half of them parachuted in. The other half, they flew out a couple of days earlier to Brussels and were driven um, up to the, the staging areas for the, for the land forces up on the banks of the Rhine. They set out their... Eureka beacons and markers for the final running for for the main aircraft coming in with the parachute troops, and so the guys that actually took part on the um, varsity itself, they were split in pairs and uh, not scattered, or they were they were placed in basically all the units that parachuted, or even some of them actually went in gliders. And the point for that 
the reason for that was that you would have guys from two two independent company on each drop zone each um, landing zone where they could um, assess the battle um, and report if they considered their area to be in complete control therefore making it safe to drop the supplies guaranteeing it would go to us our guys and and not the germans um so that's 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 what happened um the location that was selected was supplier drop point b which was just at the southern end of drop zone b and so the 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 contingent of of liberators that that dropped the supplies for the sick airborne they 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 dropped it there and i think they must have had a low flying competition on the way over because if you ever see any photographs or read any accounts of of that resupply drop they were ridiculously low bad side to that or good good side to that is you can be the lower you are the more accurate you are with where you drop stuff but you're also susceptible to to small arms fire from the ground which 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 they were so they they come in about one o'clock 1 p.m bearing in mind the first the first drop parachute drop was 9:52 by 8 8th battalion even up you know that time after there were still pockets of resistance in in amongst um, all the areas which which were able to fire with the liberators coming in and, and and a few were a few were shot down thanks for listening we hope you found it of interest the second concluding installment of this interview focusing on operation varsity will be out very shortly If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We'll also be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. We'll use various maps kindly provided by Alex and also a few of the pictures we've briefly discussed. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at Worldwoods Nation and also Instagram at Worldwoods Nation HQ.